0: Welcome to Season 7 of Bionic Planet, now brought to you by VERA, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. VERA, standards for a sustainable future.
1: Carbon credits are increasingly used to
0: neutralize the emissions of large companies, predominantly in the West. This is Adrian Courthouse, who co-founded the environmental consultancy and think-tank climate focus in 2004. And typically,
1: when corporates are accused of using offsets for, well, not reducing in their own processes, then the automatic
0: reaction is, okay, then we should squeeze the project. By that, he means we all worry that some companies might use carbon credits to avoid reducing emissions internally, but too many of us, instead of addressing that issue, are instead trying to convince people that carbon credits don't work. Which does not make sense, because if the
1: problem is with the offsetting, then the solutions should be with the offsetting and not with the projects.
0: In other words, if you want to make sure companies are using carbon credits the way they're supposed to, namely to accelerate reductions instead of avoiding them, then you need to focus on how carbon crediting fits into corporate strategies. That's what the Voluntary Carbon Markets Integrity Initiative or VCMI does, and we'll examine that in a few weeks. Initiatives like the VCMI and the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets, which I covered in Season 6, get short shrift in most media, which is why so many outlets get the fundamental nature of carbon markets wrong. If you're not paying close attention to the debates that underlie these mechanisms, you won't understand how they work or how they're being utilized. Carbon markets have been evolving for more than 30 years and you can't just parachute into them without doing some homework and expect to get them right. Paul Buter Buter has been working on climate solutions for decades. In 2020, he co-founded the Indonesia Research Institute for Decarbonization, or IRID. Uh,
2: at the end, one of the purpose of the voluntary carbon market is really how we
0: increase the ambitions of the government in meeting the targets. How do we leverage voluntary carbon markets to increase the ambitions of governmental climate targets? That's critical, because under the Paris Agreement, governments are supposed to set targets for reducing emissions through climate action plans called nationally determined contributions, or NDCs. NDCs currently are not ambitious enough to reach the Paris Agreement targets, and Kuki Seheiman, Buter Buter's partner at Irid says that's partly because developing world governments don't have a clear view into the options available to them, which makes sense because those governments didn't have to think about those options until now.
3: Previously, we were in this Kyoto Protocol regime kind of thing. There is no uh, role for government to get involved for any voluntary project because as developing countries we don't need to do all the reporting and everything.
0: It's a whole different game under the Paris Agreement with its NDCs, where governments have center court on driving emissions down as quickly and deeply as possible. That's why uh,
2: it becomes very important really to see the government involvement so that the private sector, voluntary government can uh, really deliver
0: these higher ambitions. Today on Bionic Planet, the Voluntary Carbon Markets Global Dialogue, or VCMGD, another of those critical but overlooked initiatives that are forging the climate solutions of tomorrow. The VCMGD has brought climate leaders from across the global south, from governments, from indigenous organizations, and from the carbon sector under one umbrella. To make sure that voluntary carbon markets are being leveraged to save forests, build public transport and otherwise help developing countries grow their economies in line with a low carbon future. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's
1: a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch and that is the Anthropocene.
3: We know that the enemy is
4: carbon, and we know it's ugly face, we should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
0: Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how, technology, geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we examine it through the lens of the global south as manifest in the voluntary carbon markets Global Dialogue or VCMGD. The VCMGD brought hundreds of environmentalists from across the Global South together last year, albeit virtually, to identify ways of leveraging voluntary carbon markets to accelerate the race to net zero emissions. They published a global action plan, which included six key recommendations that were big news at year-end climate talks in Glasgow in November, but that got very little attention outside the climate community. I hope to correct that today as we kick off season seven of Bionic Planet. Every country is different, and so is every country's relationship with the climate challenge. The United States, for example, became a top greenhouse gas emitter by burning fossil fuels, while Indonesia achieved that dubious distinction by chopping forests, albeit to meet the rest of the world's appetite for commodities, primarily palm oil. Paul Butar Butar and Kuki Seheyaman have been engaged in Indonesia's climate challenge for decades. In 2020, they founded IRID, the Indonesia Research Institute for Decarbonization, which I alluded to a few minutes ago.
2: We established that organization because we see a gap among the government, among the private sector, also in the CSO, on the knowledge on climate change, carbon pricing, and policy
0: that can drive the carbonizations. Today's show is about that gap and how Paul, Kuki, and others are helping to fill it by forging deeper cooperation across the Global South. It's an effort that kicked into overdrive when they got a call from this guy. I'm the facilitator of the VCM Global Dialogue. Adrian Courthouse has been working on climate solutions since the mid-1990s. He administered the Dutch government's pioneering carbon credit purchasing program before co-founding the environmental consultancy and think tank Climate Focus in 2004, along with Charlotte Streck, who we met a few times in Season 4 of Bionic Planet. Climate Focus cranks out more actionable research on how to meet the climate challenge than any other organization of its size that I know of especially around forests. Last year, as interest in carbon markets surged, Adrian took issue with the fact that industrialized countries were driving the agenda within the task force on scaling voluntary carbon markets, while forest nations were getting little more than lip service, something I covered in episode 64. He responded by reaching out to Paul, Kuki, and others across the Global South.
4: I'm Annie Grote. I lead the advocacy part of Biophilica.
0: Biophilica develops conservation projects in the Brazilian Amazon. And I caught up to Annie, as well as Paul and Kuki, at the Glasgow Climate Talks. They're three of more than 350 scientists, business people, indigenous leaders, and government representatives who participated in the VCMGD last year and we'll hear from them in the second block of today's show. We'll start, however, with Adrian, who participated in Glasgow remotely. I caught up to him at his office in Rotterdam, not because I made a special trip, but because my wife teaches there. We'll wrap up today's show with an excerpt from the presentation that he delivered remotely, which looks at the six key recommendations of the VCMGD's Global Action Plan. First, I asked him how this global dialogue thing got started. Over the past
1: years, there has been a lot of debate on voluntary carbon markets. And rightly so, because they are becoming increasingly popular and carbon credits are increasingly used to neutralize the emissions of large companies, predominantly in the West. The general dialogue on voluntary carbon markets is very much on the demand side on the side of large corporates that use carbon credits for offsetting and typically when a problem arises there for instance corporates are accused of using offsets for well not reducing in their own processes Mm -hmm. then the automatic reaction is okay then we should squeeze the projects and make sure that the quality of the carbon credits is good enough which does not make sense right because if the problem is with the offsetting then the solution should be with the offsetting and not with the projects so in this turmoil of the debate on voluntary carbon markets basically the supply side the side where the projects are taking place was squeezed in a discussion on offsetting and potentially greenwashing and for that very reason the supply side needs to get a place on the stage itself. and needs to make clear what is happening and um, develop a narrative by itself so that people in voluntary carbon markets and around realize this is happening on the supply side and these are the problems that projects are facing and this is happening on the demand side and these are the issues that we are debating about offsetting and greenwashing. And that has been going on for a while and a while and a while and then at a certain point which was, like November, December last year, then within Climate Focus and with our partners, we thought, and now we need to organize it ourselves because within the VCMI and within the task force, they don't do this, so
0: let's organize this ourselves. The way you're describing it sounds more like you were saying let's, let's communicate this better, but when I look at this, I see much more about implementation, about getting people active, getting governments involved, getting indigenous people involved. Can, can you talk yeah. about the process? In, like,
1: indeed, mm-hmm. v- very sharp of you. So it started as a communications um, initiative to create a narrative of what's happening with the money that is used for offsetting. Getting in touch with our partners in Africa, in South America, in Asia, and of course uh, with Vera, who uh, is very much on the side of produce development. Um, I think they are definitely the the champion among the standards that really care about what's going on on the project side. so They were a natural partner for us. Um, So it started with discussing what can we do. And slowly we realized it was not only about creating a narrative, but it was also about there's quite a bit that currently could be done better, but it doesn't happen because communication is lacking. So from a merely communicative exercise, creating a narrative, it turned into well, a combination of narrative and recommendations on how to improve the market. So in developing the project plan, we reached out to project developers and non-governmental organizations, basically the partners who are in the core team of the VCM Global Dialogue. Mm-hmm. Once that was set and we had secured the funding of the initiative, By then we defined the five areas we wanted to focus on, which were governments, project developers, um, Red Plus, corporates, and accounting. And we prepared large lists of people we wanted to consult. Mm -hmm. So for each of the areas we had uh, identified two authors, to main authors, champions in those specific areas. And they had interviews with lots of people for governments and pro-developers and corporates and what have you, to collect opinion, to collect uh, experience, to collect, well, evidence and, well, um, uh, narrative, what is going on. From there, from those interviews, from that experience, the first four draft reports were prepared draft position papers and those four papers were put into regional consultation so we set up regional consultations in asia in africa and in latin america where the four reports the four position papers provided the input and then the people participating which were wide diversity of people um from governments, from NGOs, from project developers, from corporates, from whatever, uh, but caring about supply in the voluntary carbon market, who were discussing together what's going on and how can we improve this and what are the hurdles that we're facing and how can we overcome this. And from there, we fine-tuned the position papers and from there, in the end, prepared the recommendations that all of us know now and that have been published. Okay. And how many people were involved in this consultation process? I would guess that in total, it must be around 350 or something like that.
0: And how did you do this during COVID? It was not done in person, I assume? It was all just passing things Everything around? Everything online. right? I would think that
1: it would have been impossible to do this in so short time with live sessions. Interesting. So this was a process actually accelerated by the Absolutely. Pandemic. Imagine, I mean, having three meetings in a period of a month and a half with only a month of preparation. You don't fly everyone into Cape Town or into uh, Nairobi or into Lagos or wherever you want to fly them to. It doesn't happen, but online, everyone is there. Yeah. So that, that worked out perfectly. And that's when they got a surprise. Most of the participants concluded it is essential to get governments on board. So typically, voluntary carbon markets, they are known for ha- not having governments on right, board. Right, right, that's the whole point. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the entire point. And we don't ask governments to come on board to start and regulate, but we think governments should embrace the mechanism to make their policies work, to basically help them get things done. So, where in traditional carbon markets, governments are regarded as regulators and box tickers and making things work, well, and then in the mindset of most p- voluntary carbon market pro-developers, blocking things, Right, right. here we think yeah. they <laughs> should acknowledge the power of this instrument and use it to implement their NDCs and use it to enable to increase the emission of their NDCs. And we're seeing now that a number of governments are indeed realizing wow there is indeed a lot of money going <laughs> into this market and it would be good if we at least try to steer it in a certain way and and use it and embrace it
0: is there an example of a government you can point to that where they were like hey this is great we could harness the power of these markets to accelerate our ndc the most
1: talked about government of course is the colombian government that uh has gone that far that they have included voluntary carbon markets in their carbon tax program, Mm -hmm. where Companies in Colombia that are subject to the carbon tax can offset part of their tax obligations by investing in Colombian voluntary carbon market projects, which, of course, is fantastic. Um, and Colombia does see this as the opportunity to get finance into, for instance, project forest protection, where government itself is lacking funding, but through voluntary carbon markets, they can mobilize funding from their corporate sector, and hence, it's it works perfectly for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's face it, most NDCs, are highly voluntary.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. right. (laughs) So most NDCs are phrased in such a way that they're vague and (laughs) (laughs) multi-interpretable. (laughs) Yeah. So if nothing is being done, very little will actually be implemented. And actually, when you look at most african asian and south american countries they are highly dependent on external finance to make it actually work Mm -hmm. so whether it is through article 6 or whether it is through voluntary markets money needs to go in Mm -hmm. Um, i don't expect even in spite of glasgow article 6 to mobilize any large sums of finance anytime soon Mm -hmm. but i do think that voluntary markets are able to do so and that's where for any country that wants to protect forests, wants to invest further into decentralized um, renewable energy. Um, The typical priorities of developing countries, they should tap into the power of voluntary carbon markets. And actually, you see now that a number of countries are exploring in that direction um, and are preparing themselves for, well, first, understanding what the voluntary carbon markets are about in the first place, and next deciding, okay, what are the things we as a government can do to make it work and to attract additional finance into our country.
0: And we should probably just clarify for a second that um, voluntary markets are, at this point, they're not included in Article 6. It's outside of it. It's completely outside. It's completely outside. Unless some country does want to do a corresponding adjustment,
1: they have that ability. Unless they want to, and of course, when they buy her. Once the corresponding adjustments, then there is a link. And then, yeah. it, but as long as the voluntary market is developing like it currently is, it will go on like it currently is, far away from the Article Six rulebook.
0: Article Six, as we've covered a lot on this show, is the part of the Paris Agreement that deals with internationally transferred mitigation outcomes, or ITMOs which includes carbon credits that are created for compliance purposes, such as under a cap and trade program, when those credits are transferred internationally. When compliance credits go from one country to another, they involve an actual transfer of an emission reduction from the host country's national carbon inventory to the buying country's national carbon inventory. And this is called a corresponding adjustment. Voluntary carbon markets are different because the unit of emission reduction doesn't go from one country to another. Instead, the climate impact is factored into the emissions of the country where it took place, the host country. A company that buys the credit in a buying country gets credit for helping the first country reduce its emissions, but that credit doesn't impact the buying country's national account. If this seems complicated, you're not alone. Even experts within the VCMGD found it confusing, and that resulted in a special report focused just on that issue. I'll provide a link to that report in today's show notes, and we'll be looping back to the issue throughout the show. We'll also wrap up with six key recommendations of the Global Action Plan, one of which we'll turn to now. It's to make sure you're involving indigenous communities who are the true guardians of the forest.
1: our recommendation to involve indigenous communities local communities was concluded already in a number of the underlying position papers so in the red plus paper in the pro development paper uh, basically project developers will recognize this when you're doing a project in the field of forests or agriculture you are working with people on the ground it's not about an investor that's just pledges an amount of money and then goes about. No, when you're doing stuff with agriculture or with forest or with anything nature, then it's with people. <laughs> typically people living there. So it, it, it is a no-brainer. Uh, and typically in, in so many projects, they are overrun or overlooked, which is not what forest protection is about. No, it's about enabling the communities that live there to take care of the forest and make it work for them.
0: Basically, the idea is if you don't have indigenous people as partners, it's just not going to work. It's not. Yeah.
1: What you do see is that it varies very much from pro-developer to pro-developer. For instance, where the proceeds land. So, carbon credits are sold into the market and prices are skyrocketing now. So, who is pocketing the price? And is there any key at all or is just, say, the basics going to local communities and the rest is going to trade? I don't know and we think and what one of the conclusions of the VCM Global Dialogue is that it is, well, basically fair mm-hmm. that those that are producing the benefits for the planet also get right. The,
0: the, the financial reward for that. Yeah. And that's also the trend in a, in the newer projects is uh, they have not just the benefit sharing component, but the risk sharing component now is becoming more popular. Like Leaf has done that uh, yep. at their level where anything above a certain price automatically goes to the people on the ground, which I think yep. should be a no brainer as well, because yep. that's, you know, if if your whole product is that we're helping people on the ground, yeah.
1: But but, but then again, of course, it it is two different worlds coming together, because in the demand side, so large corporates, which are still very influential also in project development, Mm -hmm. they are used to how things are done in the large corporate world, which is not so much about poor people on
0: the ground. Quick clarification, I'm using terms here that haven't yet been clearly defined. I was using benefit sharing to describe the first sale, so the people on the ground do get a portion of all sales, and in some cases, perhaps most cases, they get most of it, or at least they should. I use the term risk sharing to apply to prices after the sale. If someone buys credits at, say, $10 per ton and retires them to offset their own emissions, then the credit no longer exists. It's like a pizza you bought and then you ate it. But if instead of retiring that credit, whoever buys it, sells it at $20 per ton, then they do, in some cases, have to share that difference with people on the ground, as we saw in episode 67. It's rare, but it could be the way of the future, and I think it should. Getting back to the process, as the first four papers took shape, the issue of corresponding adjustments began to loom large. Maybe we can go into the accounting one. now. What led to the the creation of this fifth report? Okay,
1: what led to the creation? What is the debate about corresponding adjustments? So before Glasgow, this was the debate within voluntary carbon market. Do voluntary carbon projects need corresponding adjustments or not? And within the supply side community of voluntary carbon markets, this was a dark cloud hanging over the market. Mm Because we acknowledge, we know that there are no countries in this world that are prepared (laughs) to issue corresponding adjustments. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because, well, there is no capacity because it has not been defined in the first place. Because let's also face it, it's pretty unfair that emission reductions are created in a developing country and they don't pop up anywhere else they're just being being cancelled and that's it so making corresponding adjustments mandatory for any voluntary carbon project would be detrimental to the market Mm -hmm. and in spite of organizations and people saying this is essential from a integrity point of view most people really working on the ground were convinced that the moment it becomes mandatory it's End of business.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's game over.
1: It's game over. Mm-hmm. And that's where the accounting paper went to the bottom of what the accounting in carbon markets is all about. Mm-hmm. So how voluntary carbon market and voluntary neutralization, how it relates to any obligations under the Paris Agreement, and whether the accounting ledgers in which both systems take place are linked or not linked or how they work together. Well, it became very clear they're not linked. <laughs> they're two separate ledgers in which, in the end, yes, they register emissions and emission reductions, but they're separate, unconnected ledgers. And that is, I think, an important message to underpin the argument that, for now, at least let's stay away from corresponding adjustments. And, well, perhaps you, you'll see in future that the accounting and the emission reduction systems both under the Paris Agreement and with large corporates that they will slowly merge and that it
0: will slowly get together but not within the next five years. Yeah, and if we do everything right, I mean these markets could be gone in 10 years.
1: <laughs> exactly. The, the entire purpose is we should be very happy if we can yeah. get rid of this within the, next ten, within the next 10 years.
0: I hope by the time I retire, it's, it's locked same, in. Same yeah. with me. <laughs> <laughs> or sooner, maybe. <laughs> Incidentally, I mentioned Charlotta Strack earlier in the episode. She co-founded Climate Focus with Adrian, and she also wrote an analysis for Ecosystem Marketplace on how corresponding adjustments would play out in reality. I'll link to that in today's show notes, along with links to the VCMGD papers. My conversation with Adrian then turned to a sector I don't cover enough of on the show, transport infrastructure. Although I conducted the interview in Glasgow and Rotterdam, I'm recording this in Kenya, where I've been since Christmas. New roads are everywhere here, but trains are few and far between. Can voluntary carbon markets be leveraged to help Kenya and other countries develop more sustainable transport infrastructure? With development comes transport, and with transport comes development. <laughs>
1: And, typically, transport infrastructure leads to more emissions from more vehicles using the infrastructure, whether they be trains or cars or lorries or what have you. And here is definitely a category of avoided emissions or a category of perhaps even emission reductions when you speak about model shift. So, from one way of transport to the other, where the emission reduction from one individual vehicle is so tiny that it doesn't make any sense to right. account for. Mm-hmm. But the moment that a government starts investing, for instance, together with a development bank, into upgrading a transport infrastructure, then you're talking about large numbers of emissions or large numbers of avoided emissions. and. To include those in a carbon program would make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And typically here, these are things that you arrange not on the car level, not on the fleet level, but you organize it on the national level because that is what infrastructure is all about. Mm-hmm. So there, perhaps, transport could learn from what we've learned in the, in the Red Plus space in how you bundle small units and how you define emission reductions on a program basis rather than on the project level. I think another very important thing that we need to realize when we talk about voluntary current markets, it is still a very fragile market. We continue talking about everything is set and done and just go about. But at the same time, the discussion on greenwashing, so at the demand side, is becoming increasingly fierce. And there's a lot of discussion going on whether corporates should be allowed to neutralize their emissions or not and what they could claim. If this discussion on claims and greenwashing goes the wrong way, then the voluntary market is gone tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And we need to be very much aware of that and take care
0: it doesn't happen. As you pointed out early on, we do need to be worried about claims. We need to make sure they're right. We need to be extremely worried about yeah. claims. Because but, that we, in the
1: end, voluntary carbon markets, by nature, are voluntary. Um, and they are driven by trust. Mm-hmm. They're driven by corporates asking trust from their sh- stakeholders, from their clients. The moment the clients lose trust and think, you're not doing the real thing, you're just faking, mm-hmm. then it's done.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it's and the, the problems come in, as you pointed out, when the emphasis on making sure the claims are are valid and the companies are doing their real part. They're not just using, it's not instead of, they're not buying offsets Exactly. If, if companies are
1: claiming they are becoming carbon neutral, but everyone can see that within their primary processes, everything just continues like it has right, always right. been, then it's not
0: credible anymore, and that can't last very long anymore. Right. And the problems come when people who want to critique that fear end up trying to tear down the projects instead of... Yeah, so these are two things. Ho-
1: um, very closely related. So on one side, on the demand side, we need to resolve the issue of claims and greenwashing, and making sure that what happens with the carbon credit is credible mm-hmm. and is sincere, and can be trusted by my mother, mm-hmm. that, 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 she, that that she thinks well, that's a good thing that company X is doing this, mm-hmm. and I trust them, and I will buy their products be, because of it. Mm-hmm. So that's one. This part of the discussion, and the other part is. Let's make sure that the money flows to where it needs to flow and empower the governments and the project developers and the communities underground to, to make their lives worth
0: Before we get to the second block of today's show, a word from this season's official sponsor, or from me, on behalf of this season's official sponsor, Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. I first wrote about Vera back in the mid-2000s, before they even existed. The Kyoto Protocol was just about to kick in, and people were looking for ways to extend its Clean Development Mechanism, or CDM, to voluntary buyers. The CDM was the part of the protocol that made it possible for companies in rich countries to partly meet their commitments by financing reductions in poor countries. Put another way, the CDM was a compliance carbon market because companies used it to comply with the law. But in 2005, the Gold Standard Foundation, which oversaw the CDM gold standard, started looking for ways to let companies use the CDM for voluntary purposes. At the same time, two organizations that you probably never heard of, Climate Wedge and Chain Capital, proposed the creation of something called a Voluntary Carbon Standard, or VCS, to do the same and maybe more. So you had these two ideas kicking around in discussions much like the VCMGD is today, which is why I'm trying to push these dialogues into the open. They're where solutions take shape. I remember one raucous side event at a climate conference in Cologne, Germany. People were up on chairs, screaming, crying almost about how important it was to get this right and to go beyond just using CDM credits for voluntary offsetting And to create a whole new standard, a vehicle through which people working to make a difference on the ground, in the field, on the front lines of climate change, could introduce new approaches that could be tried and tested, crowdsource for lack of a better term, so that smallholders and indigenous people could use these markets to save their forests and support their way of life. A consensus emerged that a new voluntary carbon standard had to be created in a transparent and open-source way, with broad expert input and a way for the general public and stakeholders to get involved as well, and it needed global coordination. To their credit, Climate Wedge and Chain Capital turned the whole thing over to a global consortium that included the Climate Group and the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, among others. They developed the Voluntary Carbon Standard into a forum through which environmentalists, indigenous communities, green businesses, and anyone else who sees an unfunded climate solution can propose ways of funding that solution through carbon finance. Under the new direction, the Voluntary Carbon Standard developed a structured methodological approach to welcoming new proposals, putting them through the ringer of expert review where they'd be kicked into shape before then going out for public consultation, after which they'd be kicked around some more until they'd either be rejected or become approved methodologies. Talk about a $20 word huh? for developing specific types of carbon credits to finance specific climate solutions. The VCS also created a vehicle through which people could then use those methodologies to generate credits by saving endangered forests, reviving degraded forests, or anything else that could be shown to work, and doing so in ways that can be validated and verified by independent third-party auditors to generate a credit that can be tracked, traced, and retired. I watched the Voluntary Carbon Standard, or VCS, take shape, and I saw how its methodologies earn the respective governments, which started recognizing it for their own compliance programs, prompting a change in name to the verified carbon standard, still VCS, which eventually started generating new standards for the Sustainable Development Goals and other non-carbon benefits, prompting another change in name to Vera, with the VCS becoming one of many standards that Vera administers. I became a huge fan of Vera over the years as I watched it grow from the germ of an idea kicking around a side event in Cologne to being the most widely followed environmental standard in the world, which is why I've taken Vera on as my primary sponsor for Season 7 of Bionic Planet. The arrangement goes beyond just sponsorship. I'll also be helping Vera generate educational material and liaise with reporters. This is a big change for me because when I launched the show in 2016, I wanted to avoid sponsorship money from groups that I'd be covering. Unfortunately, I soon found that the only groups who really understood the subject matter were those I'd be covering, so I kind of shot myself in the foot. Vera, however, isn't just any group. It's an open forum within which competing ideas converge, diverge, clash, and merge. And that's what I'm trying to do with this show. Bionic Planet remains an independent production, and Vera is just one of many sponsors I'll be working with this year. I still need your help and additional sponsorship to do this right and cover additional production costs. If you support me through Patreon, I hope you continue to do so. We now pick up with more coverage of the Voluntary Carbon Market Global Dialogue. In Glasgow, I had asked Kuki Seheiman the same question I had asked Adrian Courthouse. How did this whole thing get started?
3: From the very beginning, the idea is to basically have a voice from the south as a supplier for the VCM unit. So what we have been doing was basically contacting potential players in the south, in this global south and in our case for example, Irit was responsible for Asia and Pacific kind of thing. So we try as much as we can to reach out people with different background.
0: While Cookie was reaching out to people across the Asia-Pacific region, Annie Grote was doing the same in Latin America. They weren't alone. Adrian had asked more than a dozen established players across Asia, Latin America, and Africa to get the ball rolling. Although the ultimate objective was to promote cooperation across the Global South, they needed to first scoop all of the prevailing views into consultation papers that people could bounce ideas off of. Annie Grote was lead author on the paper dealing with Red Plus. She started by asking people how voluntary carbon markets could be leveraged to scale up funding of sustainable forest management in the Global South.
4: And I think it was the perfect question to really be able to get that Global South perspective also because that the supply side primarily comes from the Global South. And so we wanted to know, okay, what kind of dialogues and voices should we be amplifying here? climate focus. We're also trying to not only get the stakeholder consultations to be from the global south but they also search for authors who also worked in those areas and I also liked how they partnered us with different institutions. For example we co-authored our paper with Conservation International So it was very good to bring not just a project developer point of view, but other ones as well.
0: The idea was to create four papers, later expanded to five, that summarized prevailing views on the issues Adrian and I discussed in the first half of the show. Those papers would then serve as the basis of workshops designed to create a global action plan.
4: We began first with the co authors trying to decide what kind of questions we wanted to explore, and then we chose some key stakeholders that. We wanted to interview so for example for our red plus project we sent out an extensive survey and followed that up with one-on-one interviews we interviewed i think around 10 people that we wanted to have more guidance on what kind of guiding questions we should focus on and then after we had decided on which questions were good enough and tried to narrow them also to to make it fit within a single paper we We talked to Climate Focus, we talked to the authors again. Like I said, sometimes we would consult all authors together so that we could also brainstorm together the kinds of things we were hearing. And then we opened up to the regional consultations. Mm -hmm. And of course this process took months. The regional consultations alone took two months. We were doing each region
3: different languages, French, Spanish, English. One of the biggest challenges at least for us in Asia-Pacific is language. That's a bigger challenge
0: in the Asia-Pacific region than it is in Africa and Latin America because very few people grow up speaking one of those three languages in Asia-Pacific. As a result, discussions there defaulted to English, which everyone knew a little, but few had grown up with.
3: I think there are quite a number of people that reluctant to also speak, and that is the reason why, at least for our Asia-Pacific consultation, we had this more interactive, like, using Slido or something like that so that people can, rather than speaking, they can also put their views in in written kind of thing.
4: It was a a serious process of first the paper, then consultations, then the paper, then consultations once more, yes. We not only consulted with our stakeholders, but then we would have debriefings with the other authors and to try to find common ground, were we getting the same kinds of feedback and how were we going to integrate that or were we not? And so it it was a very robust process, I would say, and, and a lot of back and forth. At some points, we thought we were finished writing. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the climate focus would tell us we weren't. there. <laughs> but at the end, it was good because it was a very complete exercise.
0: It wasn't long before everyone involved realized that of all the constituencies they were dealing with, the most important one didn't know it was supposed to be there.
3: The most difficult one is the government side. Maybe because of the limited understanding that they have.
0: That's not a knock on government. Kuki spent the bulk of her career in government, including as a longtime negotiator representing Indonesia at these talks. She,
2: for example, has worked in the negotiation for years. Uh, When we try to contact government, then we go through these negotiations uh, channels because those people that come into
0: negotiations are normal government. Remember what Kuki said at the top of the show.
3: Previously, we were in this Kyoto Protocol regime kind of thing. There is no uh, role for government to get involved, even to be informed, for any voluntary project. Because as developing countries, we don't need to do all the reporting and everything in terms of specific units. But as we are entering the Paris Agreement, then everything has to get the authorization from the government because it has something to do with the NDC and everything."
0: NDC, again, stands for Nationally Determined Contribution, a country's climate action plan. NDCs didn't exist under the Kyoto Protocol which only apply to developed countries, but they do exist under the Paris Agreement. All countries have submitted NDCs, and they're supposed to be generating new ones every few years with ever more ambitious targets. Governments don't always realize how voluntary carbon markets can help them to drive emissions down without digging deeper into their own limited coffers.
2: Uh, at the end, one of the purpose of the voluntary carbon market is really how we increase the ambitions of the government in meeting the targets. That's why uh, it becomes very important, really, to see the government involvement, at least to give clearance. It's not necessary for regulating, but only to give clearance so that the private sector,
0: voluntary government, can and, uh, really deliver these higher ambitions. Note the specific role of government he described. Not necessarily as a regulator, but as an entity that sets high ambitions and then looks for ways of meeting them. We'll loop back to that in a second, but first a bit on the process. Paul was lead author on the paper, providing the consensus view from the perspective of project developers. We know people
2: that have been working in the, in the carbon market for a long time, or organizations like South Pole and King from India, for example, or Eco Securities and so on. That's uh, the, the old guys that have been there for a long time. So we try to reach out to these uh, old guys, then of course we try to uh, see who are the newcomers. Newcomers
0: is a relative term. Newcomers means actually that come after, after the uh, Kyoto Protocol phase, phase 1. The Kyoto Protocol Phase 1 ran from 2008 to 2012. Newcomers are people who came in from 2012 onwards. The instant experts stampeding and now waving their fingers at us, telling us how to do things, they're fetuses compared to the newcomers. While governments were the least engaged... The most engaged were, not surprisingly, project developers, or at least those who had survived the lean years.
4: For the longest time, we were one of the only ones, or you would see a lot of players come into the market and be pushed out back when we were trying to sell credits for less than a dollar.
0: You can't generate an emission reduction for less than a dollar, and project developers were treading water for years. They were in survival mode and a lot of them didn't make it. Now the prices are rising and developers are finally getting on their feet, they have the bandwidth to coordinate.
4: And going back to what Cookie uh, was saying, because we wanted also more critical mass, right? We wanted to be able to maybe talk to the government and not be the only ones who have ideas, but really bring a group and say, hey, these are our experiences developing projects in Brazil. How can we make this more scalable? And that's, I think, the point also of the global dialogue, is to organize yourselves to keep this kind of initiative going.
2: We consulted companies that have done a lot of projects, and we want to see what kind of barriers, challenges that they, they see when it comes to scaling up voluntary carbon market. And the main risk is that the clarity now with the Paris Agreement that's not there yet, especially the position of the government, how they want to put the voluntary carbon market in relation with this Paris Agreement. That's actually the biggest challenge, because if there is no clarity on that, then of course there's no investment. Although investment in the past, they have seen that actually it brings not only benefits to the project developers and project owners, but also actually to the country. There is outcome of the project that can be counted towards the, the national development target of, of each country. At least we see employment, emission reduction and others. That, that's the, the immediate benefit that, that we see. And if there is no clarity on the NDC part and how it is related to the, the voluntary carbon market, then we are afraid that actually that there would be no new projects for voluntary carbon market.
4: I couldn't agree more. I think that kind of clarity is what people really wanted from government. And I have to say we weren't surprised by what we heard, but I I personally was surprised by the universality of it. From going to all the different consultations, whether in Latin America or Africa and Asia, and almost everyone mentioning government, (laughs) wanting more involvement, oh, my government feels... Uh, Like they leave this as a strictly private matter.
0: But remember what Paul said earlier, governments don't just regulate, they set the agendas. From the perspective of a developing country, voluntary carbon markets are development tools, which is different from mandatory carbon markets or cap-and-trade, which are regulatory tools. Most developing country governments hadn't made that distinction.
3: They need to understand that the voluntary market is another creature. (laughs) It's not the same as the the mandatory market. But within our consultation, there were also some government, you know, representative and they also say that they are not aware of what kind of role that they can play. So I think this uh, conversation is very good because then it's not only one or two stakeholders that get the information, but all, including the government, including the, the players, as well as the representative of the community.
0: And those communities are becoming more aware, at least anecdotally.
3: At least uh, from my experience, for example, from the Indonesian government, they start to at least uh, want to know what is it? Because before there is no need for them to understand, to take care of things, but now they are eager to know what is it and what role uh, that they need to play. I can speak more about the Brazilian side, but there has been a lot
4: more interest from the governments in the last two, three years. But we also saw that sometimes interest doesn't necessarily mean that they have the understanding or the technical capacity to fully grasp the carbon market. So. At least we're seeing them be a lot more approachable than in the past. Mm -hmm. Probably also because it's expanding quickly. Even here at the COP, we're just so impressed with how much interest at least the Brazilian government has shown. Mm -hmm. But I would say it's pretty recent, (laughs) for sure.
0: And that, again, doesn't mean regulating, at least not when it comes to voluntary carbon markets, which are different from mandatory markets. Because it is
2: voluntary actions by private sector. What we are afraid of is really that government see this opportunity and they say, "Okay, let's regulate. And that's the thing that we should avoid. But important is how government could encourage, not regulating, but encourage uh, the participation of uh, private sectors to really do something to, to mitigate their emissions. So as long as it is not regulating,
0: then that should be okay. Again, they're not saying we can magically fix the climate mess without government regulation. Just that misguided regulation can do some damage in voluntary markets.
4: I I would say it's a matter of not reinventing the wheel. So to use the example of Brazil, now we're trying to pass a law about payment for environmental services. And then carbon is just one element. Of that and the government has been trying to hold consultations because there's so many aspects to focus on what kind of contracts are you gonna have what kind of services should be allowed or not what kind of land and our main advice was always the voluntary carbon market is very structured by now there's already so much methodologies around it that the only mistake maybe that government could do is to try to not make use of all that knowledge that is already existent and not go with that.
0: If that sounds familiar, it's because we had the same issues in Episode 64, which focused on the Task Force on Scaling Voluntary Carbon Markets. That was a private sector initiative led by big banks and consultancies. I participated in the task force, and it did seem to me at the time they were going to jettison 50 years of voluntary carbon market evolution and not only reinvent the wheel, but reinvent the square one that had been tried and abandoned long ago.
4: Something really important that came out of the consultations is it's not just government that sometimes has misunderstandings. We sometimes heard a lot on technicalities of the projects and how do we address advance when we're talking about jurisdictional programs. So I think this dialogue is maybe a first step to get a big picture of needs and desires and things to discuss. But there's so much more organized dialogue that needs to follow this. That should be the main takeaway from this project to be an initial
3: overview of what still needs to be explored. Another thing that we can learn from this dialogue is that from different regions we can learn from each other. Because it's like, for example, As Emmy just mentioned earlier that in Latin America, people are more familiar with VCM, including the government in a way, while in Asia Pacific, for example, it's something totally different. We have the players, but that's all. The rest, they don't know anything about the VCM. So I think this kind of of consultation every now and then I'm like, Definitely we need to have this regional one, but maybe once in a while we can also have the global one.
0: As the first four papers were coming together, a fifth one emerged, one that climate focus initially wanted to steer clear of.
3: One of the biggest questions that came from them is basically on accounting, like under Article 6. And then we, at that time at least, we don't want to touch on accounting too much because the whole time will be... Will be used for discussing that right and then that's why they decided to have another paper specifically and another consultation or two others consultation specifically talking about the accounting so That's how it came out. And I think the accounting paper was one of the the fastest.
4: Yes, uh, congratulations to the accounting authors because they had just the very technical expertise on it. And I think that was very good for the organizers to realize, okay, we need to do yet another paper on this specific topic because yeah, we ha- we can do a, say, red plus perspective on accounting, but that wouldn't even cover, I don't know, 10% of the problem.
0: That paper could have easily spun out of control, as these things always seem to do. But instead, the authors kept it simple, focusing on the differences between the compliance or mandatory market and the voluntary market, I found it to be a solid and simple introduction to the topic, and I encourage you to dive in as well. You'll find it in today's show notes.
3: The the discussion on that accounting paper is more on uh, how do you call it? Accounting for uh, the voluntary carbon market is basically different with the mandatory one, so it won't affect the NDC and all those things. So it's more on that It was very didactical,
4: so they would, for example, explain keywords, like if we're talking about double counting, like what are all the scenarios for double counting? What do we mean? And how does it affect this market as opposed to the other one? So I think the accounting paper was key in trying to talk about the misunderstandings or sometimes misalignments that we would hear within the global dialogue, because It's true, sometimes in this market there's first so many technical terms and then sometimes these terms can mean different things in different contexts. So it's very important to just lay them out and that's what that paper does.
0: We'll get to the final block of today's show in a moment, but first, a question. Do you think I'm doing a good job of translating these technical issues into plain English and putting them into context for you? And do you want more and better episodes? Then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash bionic planet there you can support the show for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap this way if i don't manage to generate an episode in a month you don't get charged and if i manage to crank out a ton of episodes you don't get whacked either the web address again is not the bionic planet website but the patreon website P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. And now that I have sponsorship, any funds raised through Patreon will go to producers and other contributors helping to make this a better production. If you're part of a moral business entity that wants to sponsor the show or a philanthropist who wants to make a larger donation, I'm now fiscally sponsored through Manga Bay as a nonprofit, which means you can make a tax deductible donation, which can help me generate a lot of episodes and even contract a sound designer and other contributors, as well as putting in more of my own time. For that, you can email me at steve at bionic-planet.com. That's steve at bionic-planet.com. We turn now to the VCMGD's Global Climate Action Plan, which included six keys for making sure we get the most bang for the voluntary carbon market buck. You can find these six keys at vcm gd.org that's vcm gd.org as well as in today's show notes but we'll get to them now as well i'll start by reading them off to you then we'll hear from adrian once again who will flesh them out a bit here they are one governments can use the voluntary carbon market to expand the way their countries reduce emissions two governments companies and greenhouse gas crediting programs should promote clear and transparent voluntary carbon market accounting three Carbon credit buyers and investors should prioritize transformational voluntary carbon market investments with broader development benefits and verified contributions to the sustainable development goals. 4. The voluntary carbon market can empower and strengthen the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities. Five, governments and private partners should cooperate in developing voluntary carbon market transactions at sectoral and jurisdictional scales, meaning across specific industries and specific regions. Finally, number six, governments, companies, and carbon market facilitators should initiate regional and national voluntary carbon market dialogues. Adrian presented these in Glasgow, where he participated remotely. I was moderating a panel in Glasgow while Adrian was in Rotterdam. Paul and Annie were also in Glasgow, and Charlotte de Streck was also joining from Rotterdam. I'll provide a link to that entire event in today's show notes, but here's an excerpt where Adrian lays out these six key points for us.
1: We've come up with six recommendations, and I'll lead you through each of them one by one. The first recommendation, and in from my point of view, perhaps the most remarkable recommendation is that governments, particularly governments in developing countries, should start becoming engaged in voluntary carbon markets. It is peculiar and remarkable because so far voluntary carbon markets have been developed and have flourished in the absence and basically in parallel to what governments have been doing. It has been set up specifically to overcome the red tape that comes with government involvement. But now we are at the point where voluntary carbon markets need to scale, where vast amounts of finance are coming from private sector everywhere across the world towards developing countries. And this is the moment for governments to get in this game and make voluntary carbon markets work for them. We're not talking here about starting to regulate or starting to become involved in uh, determining what makes a good project or what does not make a good project. But moreover, governments could use the voluntary carbon markets as a tool to finance their priority areas, which otherwise would not be financed, and hence speed of implementation of their uh, NDCs or even increase the ambition of NDCs later on. To do so, we recommend, first of all, they start becoming involved in VCM simply by knowing what's going on. Most governments currently don't know what is going on in voluntary carbon credit projects in their countries. So creating a voluntary carbon market database, gathering the knowledge and information, they are essential conditions for engagement. Next, they could prioritize sectors or geographic areas in which VCM investments can take place. They could approach carbon pricing holistically or consider the voluntary carbon market as part of the climate policy toolbox. They could also start promoting foreign investments, promoting through, for instance, investment agencies, either existing agencies or or newly set up agencies. These are just a few recommendations. How governments can start becoming active in the voluntary carbon markets, tap into additional mitigation potentials. Secondly, and here I already mentioned, the hot potato is how do you compare emission reductions or emission removals created in voluntary carbon projects with those under the NDC accounting, the accounting under the UNFCCC. There's a lot of discussion going on on corresponding adjustments, on whatever accounting tricks in which we try to address the, well, we fear that emission reductions created in voluntary carbon markets could interfere with the ambition of either governments or of private entities in the UNFCCC accounting world. So far we have come to the conclusion and our stakeholders have come to the conclusions that we actually really don't know what is happening and how these two systems can be compared. So creating transparency between greenhouse gas crediting programs and the accounting under the NDCs, there we should create transparency. Establish definitions and establish a common understanding of how the different accounting approaches work clarify whether and how corresponding adjustments will be made or could be made or may not be made and formulate last but not least and that is very much on the side of the demand side formulate clear and transparent climate claims. Um, if, in our view most of the debate and most of the criticism in voluntary carbon markets currently comes from perhaps a little inflated rates that corporates launch uh, use for their use of voluntary carbon credits in their their net zero strategies. Next, carbon credit buyers and investors should prioritize transformational VCM with broader development benefits. That's a mouthful of recommendation. What we mean to say here, there is a lot of benefit from voluntary carbon market projects. First of all, there are projects which basically act as a catalyst to scale up or introduce a technology or to introduce a procedure into a country with the help of carbon finance, after which it can scale up automatically without carbon finance elsewhere. Meaning, if those projects are financed, that could have a huge effect on more emission reductions afterwards. Next. Quite a few projects, whether they are in the field of protecting forests or restoring landscapes or bringing energy to the rural poor, a lot of voluntary carbon market projects have contributions that matter to people on the ground. And when these benefits would be certified, and quite a few uh, instances they already are, they could attract additional finance and they could attract additional interest. Prioritizing projects that certify SDG contributions that are likely to have a positive social and environmental impact, those are the projects that would really make a huge difference. At the same time, we must be aware that when engaging in such projects, then buyers should should also be willing to pay a higher price for those projects, for those carbon credits, which currently is not yet the case. Last but not least, in this category of recommendations, facilitate upfront investment into those projects. Finance is the main bottleneck in most of it. Having a promised extra uh, income stream later on is one thing, but having the money now to start designing and developing the project is even more important. Next, Indigenous peoples and local communities and especially when it comes to projects in the in forests in land use in what have you their indigenous peoples and local communities are basically the key actors in any project and so far their position their rights their interest have been mainly overlooked do we want the VCM to work and work for any kind of land use uh, land use change project then recognizing and acknowledging the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities is key. Allow them to participate in voluntary carbon markets, and not on our terms from the West, but on their own terms. We must acknowledge that the power balance between ourselves here in Glasgow, in the West, and those that are on the ground being stewards of the forest is incredible. And that is where we should be aware of when designing our projects properly. Not only the terms, but also benefit sharing. So, who is going to have the benefits of the payment uh, of voluntary carbon credits in the end? How are they divided between buyers, sellers, pro developers, and the communities, which is, which in the end, it is all about. And sure, fair benefit sharing is absolutely crucial. What is also crucial is acknowledging carbon rights. So, if projects are developed in the areas where Indigenous peoples, local communities, play a key role, then thinking about how to allocate rights to those communities is of uh, utter uh, importance. Next, the next recommendation is about scaling. Governments and private partners should cooperate in developing VCM transactions at sectoral and jurisdictional scales. This recommendation is actually quite logical. The larger the initiative, the larger the impact and the individual project skill can be quite small and can be quite insignificant but bundling the initiatives and creating structures that enable replicating initiatives and making use of the larger scale, they could be very impactful the recommendations are to develop programmatic and sectoral initiatives the larger and the more inclusive the activity the broader its impact as i've already said then next nesting is a Uh, concept from REDD+, where initiative projects are bundled and scaled up until you have a regional or jurisdictional scale, that concept could also be used for other areas. For instance, in the field of transport, where the contribution of one single car does not make too much of a difference. But if you uh, recognize the entire motorway infrastructure of a country, then develop sectoral crediting approaches is a logical next step. Greenhouse Gets crediting programs like Vera could play a major role in that, in developing approaches and methodologies that actually promote sectoral carbon market investments. And last but not least, the uh, last recommendation is about cooperation. So far, everyone has done its own little piece is own little bit, but we can only make this work when governments, companies and carbon market facilitators work together and make the VCM work for everyone. In the first place, getting back to governments and seeing how governments are acting, they, most of the governments in developing countries currently don't know about voluntary carbon markets and how they could work. Here, companies, carbon market facilitators, and governments should join forces in actually well, discussing, A, what needs to be going on, B, organize capacity building, and identify technical and methodological needs. And there's an, this is an invitation to you over there in Glasgow, AIDA, or ICROA, the Reduction Offset Alliance. They could be instrumental in helping host countries where projects place, take place realize and understand what voluntary carbon markets can mean for them. Last but not least, close, close the knowledge gaps around NDC implementation. The coordination between governments is essential to realize how voluntary carbon markets can be used to implement NDCs, to increase the ambition of NDCs and understand how the underlying mechanisms could work. Uh, how they relate to baselines, how they relate to in additionality. So six recommendations, Steve and over you there in the audience, to make voluntary carbon markets work as a boost for implementing emission reduction and sustainable development in Asia, in Africa and in Latin America.
0: Adrian Courthouse closing out this edition of Bionic Planet, brought to you in part by Vera, the world's most widely followed environmental standard. If you like the show and want more and better episodes, then help me give them to you by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot forward slash bionic planet. There you can support the show for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. That's patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. And that's all for today. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Nairobi. Thanks for listening.